Last week in our look at the first five verses of Ezra chapter 4, we saw how the enemies of God's people did everything in their limited power to stop the Jews from building the temple. The passage outlined five main tactics of the enemy. Number one, the first thing they did is they came alongside the Jews and offered to help. Number two, when refused, they told the Jews that it was useless to continue building. Number three, they told the Jews that they would never finish what they started. Number four, they hired counselors against them. And then finally, number five, they tried to cut off their supply of building materials. Because our enemy knows that human nature hasn't changed, he uses many of the same tactics against people today. God, in his mercy and grace, forewarned us regarding the subtleties of the devil and his minions, and we would be wise to take heed. I left you with these encouragements from God's word. Be wary of false teachers who look like servants of righteousness, but focus anywhere but the cross of Christ. Plant this truth in your heart. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to call sinners, because it is the sick that need a physician, not the healthy. If you are Christ's, never let anyone rob you of your assurance of heaven. Immerse yourself in truth so that teachers and professors don't rob you of your trust in scripture. And rest in the fact that God will take care of you, even in times of persecution, maybe especially in times of persecution. Now to today's message. Let's read Ezra chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 6 and read through to the end of the chapter. Ezra chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. 
you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men must be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humble our hearts before you and your word this morning. We thank you that you have given us truth and that to the degree we embrace this truth that points constantly and consistently and graciously and mercifully toward the cross of Christ, that you would guide us and direct us by the spirit that lives within us. Thank you for this time together this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word and that your spirit would just be in our midst to stir us up to seek you and to seek truth uh, in, in our worship here this morning. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled today's message, The Most Dangerous Lie. Before we dive in to today's text, in order for the flow of the story to make sense to us, we must recognize, I think, that verses 6 through 23, which we've just read, are like a parenthesis that interrupts the timeline of the story. This is very common in ancient literature, but at times it can be confusing to us in modern times because we're so used to things being laid out in chronological order. In Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus the Great releases the Jews from captivity to return to Jerusalem and its surrounding area to rebuild the temple. In chapter 2, a list of those who returned is given. In chapter 3, the altar of sacrifice is rebuilt and the foundation for the new temple is laid. Last week, in the first five verses of chapter 4, the enemies of the Jews show up to disrupt the work. Now, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 4, Ezra gives us an overview of all of the opposition the Jews would face over the next many decades. Ezra is organizing his book by topic. 
He, he introduced the idea of the opposition the Jews faced through their time in Jerusalem and talks about the different ways in which the work was hindered. At the end of chapter 3, only the temple foundation was laid. Remember, the people saw the size of the foundation and some rejoiced because they had begun the work and some wept because they knew that it would never live up to the temple that Solomon built. That was kind of the end of the story that we were looking at there. And then the enemies showed up. It seems as though by the end of chapter 4, verse 23, the temple may have been standing for up to 50 years. So you can see how he's saying, first this letter was written, and then this letter was written to the next king, and then that king replied. So he's going through a, a long period of time as he's touching on the topic of opposition to the work. Then in verse 24, the last verse we just read, he jumps back in time to the process of the rebuilding of the temple again. I hope this helps you in your own personal study as you're reading Ezra. It can be, it can be difficult for us to understand if we think that it's all happening in order. But if you see it as just a parenthesis, and then he's back to the story in verse 24 about the rebuilding of the temple, then it makes sense. You'll notice in the outline uh, that comes up here in a moment that um, I started with Roman numeral 2 because this message really is just a continuation of last week's message, but I only got through one point. So, while going through my study this week, I had to strongly resist the urge to make this message too political. When I glimpsed the truth that God has given us in today's passage, and look, at, and look at what is happening in Canada and the United States, culminating in rioting and violence. The parallels are striking. Lies imprison and destroy. Truth sets free and restores. But we're not here this morning to hear a political commentary. For that, you can subscribe to Rex Murphy's YouTube channel. We are here to worship God and learn from the truth contained in his word. Two letters are sent to two kings. The first thing to note here is that verse 6 and verse 7 are talking about two separate accusations and two separate kings. The first letter went to Ahasuerus. This is very likely the same Ahasuerus we read about in the book of Esther. When we transliterate his name into Greek, we get Xerxes. And that's maybe a more common name that you've heard in history lessons or whatever. Um, but Xerxes, the great king of Persia. To be fair, historians are not unanimous on this king's identity. So I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But nothing seems to have become of this first letter. Perhaps Ahasuerus was too close in time to Cyrus the Great to go against his decree. I don't know. Perhaps the events surrounding the king and Esther and Mordecai and Haman influenced or interfered with this first accusation. Again, I'm not sure. And it doesn't affect today's message. Regardless, the enemies of the Jews needed a bit more time so that history would be forgotten 
before they could do the damage they wanted to do. Later, verse 7, a letter was then sent to King Artaxerxes to accuse the Jews. Biblical historians are not entirely sure if this is the same Artaxerxes that wrote a letter to Ezra, allowing him to go back to Jerusalem and worship, or even the same Artaxerxes that sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that we'll read about later on. The name Artaxerxes means something like heroic ruler of truth, which is a humble title many Persian kings used for themselves. This is complicated even for historians, so I'm not going to get into the reasons here, but there are several good explanations for the troubles in nailing down who some of these kings were. Some of the dates and names are very well known, and we build the narrative around those in order to harmonize the scriptural account. The important thing for us this morning is that the letter is called an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Accusation is a connotatively powerful word for the Jews. The Hebrew word comes from the word Satan, which means accuser, the most common Hebrew name for the enemy of our souls. The word was not used lightly by Ezra or anyone else in the Old Testament. So Ezra provides a copy of the letter. Ezra provides a copy of the accusation in order to expose the lies. And it is well that we have it, that we might further learn the methods our enemy uses against us. Last week, we talked about some of the tactics that Satan uses against us to hinder the work of the gospel moving forward. And this accusation is a continuation of that thinking. The accusers represent themselves as very loyal to the government. I don't know if you noticed it when you were reading the letter, but I just thought these guys are, they're, they're just flattering the king, saying exactly what the king would want to hear. You can, it, it oozes out of that letter that that's what they're doing. A dislike of Christ and his gospel is often masked over with a pretended affection for the authorities. Do you recall what the Jewish politico-religious leaders shouted when they wanted Christ crucified? I'll give you a little hint. Christ was brought before the crowd and the person in authority said, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews. Do you remember what they shouted out? Crucify him. What else did they say? We have no king but Caesar. Centuries of Jewish rebellion against oppressive Roman rule dissolved as soon as the enemies of Christ could, could unite against him and the truth that he taught. I am reminded of the ancient Far East proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. All of a sudden, the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders were best of friends as long as they were united against Jesus Christ. 
tactic of the devil. We are seeing the same principle at work in the West today. Make no mistake, the enemies of Christ are attempting to unite in opposition to the clear teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, which bring peace, hope, and joy. They are not yet aware of, or don't care about, the end of the story given to us in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The writer goes on to say, as interpreted by the Apostle Paul, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has conclusively demonstrated that it is Jesus who will eventually rule all nations, and those now in authority would be wise to submit to him. He concludes the psalm with these words, Blessed are all who take refuge in him, the king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The accusers represent the Jews as disloyal and dangerous to the government. So they start by saying, King, all we want is the best for you. But these guys sure don't. They'll do everything they can to rebel against you. They establish that the Jews and the city of Jerusalem have an historically bad reputation. I don't know about you, but I can't help but see here the same methods Adolf Hitler used about 25 centuries later. The Jews are the enemy of the people. If we want things to go well, we have to fix the Jewish problem. Satan and his tactics have not changed. One of the surest signs that Satan, the accuser, is at work in any society is anti-Semitism which is an opposition to, a distrust of, or even a hatred of Jews. Ever since God chose the descendants of Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, Satan has been trying to destroy them. Whether it is simple hatred for that which God has loved, or an attempt to thwart God's plan for human history, or both, I don't know. But history is clear. No group has been persecuted more through the ages than the Jews. In the past century, Christians are catching up. And we need to remember our brothers and sisters worldwide that are facing persecution even today. On average, 11 Christians die every day because they're Christians. That's to say nothing of rapes, mutilations, and kidnappings. As a result, Christians have surpassed the Jews as the most persecuted religious group in the world today. But don't worry, you won't hear it on the news. 
Here's something to have your eyes and ears open to. A society in which anti-Jewish sentiment is increasing is a society that has fallen for the lie. Read with me Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 12. If a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. If a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. Okay, no political commentary. Then the accusers drop the blatant lie. First, they've sucked up to the king. Then they've said that the Jews opposed the king, and now they drop the lie. They were very careful to over-report the progress that the Jews had made in rebuilding. They also recalled for the king the past abuses committed by Israel and Judah to cast them in a bad light. Sadly for the Jews, the second part of the report was true. And that's what makes the most dangerous lie. Have you ever looked at a box of rat poison? When you look at a box of rat poison, it'll say something like, contains 99.99% good food and 0.001% whatever it is that they put in there to kill rats. Because if they just had poison, the rats wouldn't be tricked by it. They wouldn't eat poison. We wouldn't accept a lie. But if it's mixed with a whole lot of truth, we might swallow the whole thing. So sadly for the Jews, the second part of the report was true. The most dangerous lie you will encounter is the one that has some truth in it. The fact was the Jews had kings that ignored the wise counsel they were given by God through the prophets and provoked many nations around them to violence and war. And in their wickedness, God allowed these nations to completely conquer Israel and Judah. Tragically, very tragically, the same could be said for the conduct of Christian groups throughout the centuries. And Christians today still live with much of that stigma. But more importantly for our purposes this morning, perhaps this should cause us to look inward at our own lives rather than outward at what's happening. And this is where I want to focus your attention today. Because of the nature of the text today, much of the message today has, been, has so far been quite negative. I don't like that. And I don't want that to be what anyone takes away from this morning's time together. God's people should never be idle victims of deception, but rather soldiers of truth. So let's get more personal. Does the enemy of your soul point out to you your past failings in order to discourage you? Perhaps you have never fully trusted Jesus Christ with your life and you are looking back at your life and you are saying, there's just too much baggage there for me to move forward. This 
is a lie. But it is mixed with enough truth to make you doubt. The fact of the matter is, you have a great deal of sin that you are carrying around with you. But listen to the words of Jesus of Nazareth, even as I quoted them last week. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, as well as Matthew 9 and Mark chapter 2, Jesus is sitting down for a meal with sinners, the undesirables of his day. The self-righteous religious leaders questioned why he would spend time with people like that, people like you and me. Here's his answer in verses 31 and 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So you're not carrying around too much baggage for Jesus to handle. That's why he came. Do we wait until we are no longer sick before we go to see a doctor? Well, I should admit that very often when I felt sick, I would make the phone call and make an appointment. And of course, because of our socialist medical system, be like, yeah, you can see a doctor in five weeks. Well, by the time five weeks comes around, I'm like, actually, I'm feeling okay. And then I'm, and I cancel my appointment. So the medical system seems to be working well. <laughs> but of course you don't do that. You don't call the doctor after you're feeling better or after you have been done being sick. Then why do we do this for healing for our sin? Jesus doesn't expect you to get your life cleaned up before you come to him. He wants you to come to him as you are so that he can clean you up, forgive you of your sin, and adopt you into his family so that you can have eternal life. There's no sin that you have committed that Jesus didn't die for. There's no sin that you have committed that Jesus didn't die for. If you, are, if you recognize that you are a sinner that needs God's forgiveness, but you don't come to Jesus, then you are like the person that knows, he's ha that knows he has cancer, but refuses to go to the doctor until it clears up. Please don't make this mistake. For the Christian, the enemy is going to point out your past sin to you. Not so that you will seek forgiveness, but so that you will be anxious, depressed, discouraged, and ineffective, because that's what guilt does. But, and here I'm asking you to be slightly less small c conservative, what can he point out if God in Christ has removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west? I asked a question. What can he point out if God in Christ has removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west? Nothing. Next question. What can he point out if God in Christ has thrown your sin into the deepest part of the sea? You guys are so conservative. 
<laughs> what can he point out if God in Christ has paid the penalty for your sin in full and granted you eternal pardon? Thank you. Back to our text in Ezra. The verdict is delivered. The king of Persia ordered the building to stop. Due to the lies the king received and believed, the work of the Lord ground to a halt. Some Christians think we shouldn't get involved in politics. Some Christians that I admire deeply believe we shouldn't get involved in politics. That's their view. But I think we have some good reasons as Christians to be involved in politics. And I think maybe the best reason is if you look at the border between North Korea and South Korea. In North Korea, most of the people have never heard the gospel because their freedoms are completely oppressed. The people have given over all power to one person, kind of like we have in Canada. In South Korea, the gospel is exploding. South Korea right now has one of the fastest growing Christian communities, evangelical Christian communities in the whole world. People have access to scripture and the Bible because they have a system that allows them to look at those things. So it does matter. The king of Persia consulted the records concerning Jerusalem. Remember, he was told, if you look at the records about the way Jerusalem behaved, this is what you're going to find. So that's what he went looking for. He found that indeed the city had rebelled against the king of Babylon. That's why Nebuchadnezzar came by the second time. The king of, pardon me, the king of Judah said, we decided we're not going to pay tribute to you. Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, that's fine. I'll come and take everything. And he did. But the king in Persia, that's all he looked for. That's what he was told to look for. And that's what he looked for. He only sought out the information he had been told to seek out. Had he been looking for the whole picture, he would have found the decree of Cyrus that freed the Jews to return home and rebuild. Notice the extreme subtlety in the lie. It was 99.99% true but the 0.001% stopped the work. He appointed these Samaritans that wrote the letter maliciously to stop the building of the city immediately until further orders should be given about it. And the enemies of the Jews made malicious use of these orders. Upon receiving them, they quickly and zealously went up to Jerusalem to bring the work of the Lord to a halt. Edmund Burke, the great, the great Irish statesman and philosopher, himself a committed Christian, wrote this. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Don't fall into the trap of waiting for someone else to do the good 
that needs doing. Rather, follow the example of Zerubbabel and the other Jews in today's scripture and expose lies with truth. Our enemy wants to disrupt the work of the gospel and he'll use any tool at his disposal. At the root of every one of his tools, we will find a lie. He is, after all, the father of lies. And those that use lies make themselves tools of the enemy as well. Always tell the truth, or at least don't lie. Let's close, and I'll ask uh, Timothy and Josiah to leave this scripture up until, we're, until we leave here this afternoon, so you guys can look at it and meditate on it as you would like. But let's close with a New Testament commentary on our passage. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8 through 11. Notice the hope that permeates the end of the passage. And this is why I chose this passage. I wanted us to leave here with hope in our hearts. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy in a passage like today to dwell on the negative, and perhaps I've done that too much. Father, I want you to bring this passage in 1 Peter 5 to our minds throughout the week, though. The passage says that Christians everywhere suffer. It's hard for Christians everywhere. Things are difficult. Our enemy is prowling around looking for someone to devour. And you have pleaded with us in our passage to be firm in our faith to rest entirely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that in this, we will be strengthened and confirmed and established and encouraged. Lord, I pray that it is to Christ and to his cross that we rest our hearts this week. So much can go wrong and yet nothing has left your sovereign control and we are so grateful that you have given us these beautiful promises in your word that we can cling to that they are our anchor of hope in christ i pray for each person that has joined us this morning that by your spirit you would bless them and uplift them and encourage them strengthen them confirm them and establish them in their homes and communities 
I pray for our country that so desperately needs the light of the truth of the word of God to shine into their hearts. It seems that everywhere we look, people are, are, are abandoning the truth of your scripture. And we ask that you would expose lies and that you would enable us as soldiers of the cross to bring the truth of the gospel to a desperate society. Thank you that the truth of the gospel is our hope and our joy, that it is absolutely true, that there's no enemy that can come against it. So help us to rest there. Help us to go from this place encouraged. I pray your protection upon this body of believers. We have a society that doesn't want us to gather. We have rules that tell us that we must not meet together as God's people. We must not sing praises to you. And I just ask that you would protect these people as we attempt to be obedient to the truth of your word here in this place. We thank you for this, this morning together, this time together for each person here, because it is by your grace we can even be here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.